0: The Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Hello, everybody, welcome to this week's show. This is the Collective Whisper Podcast, and my name is Simon Kaye. So before we move on to our next guest, I'd just like to ask you to subscribe and follow the show. We would appreciate it very much. Okay, so today we're going to be talking to Billy Walsh. Billy Walsh is an Irish former boxer who's currently the head coach of USA Boxing. Raised in Wexford, he competed in the men's welterweight event at the 1988 Summer Olympics appointed head coach of the irish high performance boxing program in 2003 walsh was at the helm of irish boxing at the 2008 summer olympics and 2012 summer olympics guiding them to seven medals bookmarked by katie taylor's gold in london he was headhunted by the americans after the us men went home without a medal for the first time in games history and became the usa women's boxing coach in 2016 walsh was awarded the international boxing association amateur coach of the year
1: so welcome to the show Billy Walsh. How are you? Great Simon. Uh great to be on your show and I'm uh, looking forward to the the conversation. Brilliant. It's great. I I I sometimes I have special
0: guests on my radar, you know. I, like all the guests are special, but there's every so often I'm like I really want to get that person on my show because I always think, you know, some people have really interesting stories to tell and you know I I'm not a boxer, but I've been involved in martial arts and kickboxing and stuff for years. So I follow the boxing world a lot, you know, and um, you've always kind of I've always followed your news stories and your achievements so far. And, you know, I think you're doing a great job. And once I kind of saw that there could be a possibility of getting on the show, I said, I have to get him on. You know, I have to get him on.
1: That's That's great. great. Great to hear. Thank you very much
0: thinking there, you know, you're you're a Wexford man. You still have the Wexford accent. It's uh my, my dad was a Carlo man and uh it's funny when I'm he was Carlo Wicklow around that area and you the, the Wicklow accent and the Carlo accent is strong and the Wexford accent is strong too. So you can't mistake it.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think one of the things I said to my friends um when I was leaving was six six years ago now actually but I said, if, if I come back with an American accent, you have permission to shoot me. So <laughs> I, try, <laughs> I try my best to, to hang on to the bit, of, the bit of the yellow belly is still in me, you know. <laughs> yeah. And you,
0: you're you're based in around Colorado Springs, are you? Or Colorado.
1: Yeah. Colorado Springs. Yeah. We're based there. The Olympic Training Center is there. And that's the reason why we're based there. It's an altitude. It's a beautiful place. We're right up in the Rocky Mountains. Um, very outdoor, outdoorsy. Great climate. Yeah, it's a nice, it's a nice, nice part of the world.
0: Brilliant. It's uh, it's one of those places I imagine for training, especially with outdoor training, it's wonderful, you know, to have that kind of uh, climate for one thing, but even all the nature around you and if you want to take it to the hills and everything, it's great for outdoor running and training, isn't it?
1: Yeah, without doubt. It's really, as I said, you an outdoorsy uh, estate, and um, Lots of skiing, if you want to go there, you know, every day, there's 300 days of sunshine, you know, and even in the middle of the winter, it's like that. So it's um, it's really good. And, and the key thing, I think, why it was chosen as the Olympic City is uh, it's 6,200 feet above sea level or 1,800 meters above sea level. So the altitude is optimal for uh, athletic performance.
0: Right. Yeah. So, so it kind of brings the best out in the athletes and pushes them a little more.
1: Yeah, it's difficult when you get there first to try and adjust to it, but then when you come back after a stint of training there, down to sea level, you you have a hell of a lot more oxygen in your system, so it enables you to go a bit harder.
0: Yeah, that's always amazed me, you know, because um, I remember, you know, over the years you'd have fights, and, and I think I think, I think it was, if you remember when Barry McGuigan fought uh, Pedrosa, wasn't it? Um yes.
1: And, and that was, where was that? Was that in Florida? Where was that again? No, he, he fought Eusebio Patroza in, in QPR. That's when he won the title. He fought Stevie Cruz. He fought Stevie Cruz in Las Vegas. Stevie
0: Cruz, that's the one. Yeah. And that, that there was a little bit of, of a climate kind of problem there too, because I think for some boxers, it opened their eyes as to the fact that you can be conditioned as much as you want, but if you're not ready for the climate, it can really hit you, can't it? Yeah,
1: you know. You know, it was a, it wasn't a great mistake. It was a bad mistake at the time. Uh, Barry fought on, on the undercard of one of his, his heroes one of his idols, and Roberto Duran. And uh, he wanted to be on that show. And then he fought in the midday sun. Uh, you know, where it was like 110 degrees or something. And there's not too many Irishmen are used to that type of type of weather. You know. They're definitely in cloners you're not used to.
0: <laughs> no, no, that's for sure. And and the thing is, you see it now more and more, whether it's in the boxing world, professional boxing, amateur boxing, or the UFC or anything like that. When a lot of these fighters are conditioning now, they have to take into account really strongly the the climate, where the fight's going to be. I mean, I've seen it, seen it there, obviously, when fights are in Abu Dhabi or Dubai in these places you have to be ready for that, don't you?
1: Absolutely. you gotta go you got to go and acclimatise. You got to go there and get into the time zone. You don't need to be falling asleep when it's time to time to be to be wide awake um, when you're going to compete. So you got to adjust your body clock and uh, to be there. And there's 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 a, there's a science behind that as well, and how you do that and how to how to get the best out of yourself.
0: What happens, you know, a fighter when they get into that condition? Is Does their energy drain much faster or they just get like lactic acid
1: quicker? What happens? Well, it's just the fact that it's simple. Your body clock is not, it's not adjusted. And you're, you're when you should be in your sleep time, you're probably going to be competing. So that's definitely going to have a detrimental effect on your performance. Uh, so you're trying to give yourself every opportunity to be ready. There's a rule of thumb who says that, for every day or every hour, every hour uh, of a time difference, you need to go a day to acclimatize. So, if you're ten hours of a time difference, you need to be there ten days to 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 be, to adjust to the uh, situation. And of course,
0: like you said, when when Barry McGregan fought in the midday sun, that's another thirty or forty percent weight on top of of like a challenge, isn't
1: it? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that that, that humidity and that heat that you're gonna Meat in Las Vegas is definitely nothing that we're used to in Ireland. Even in the sunny southeast, we don't get it that hot. <laughs> so it's you know straining, and there was lots of stuff went on in that day. There was talks about not getting water in in the corner, and all, all sorts of conspiracy theories went yeah. on. But at the end of the day, <laughs> the fact was you're in 110 degree heat, fighting against a Texan who who grew up in that climate, uh, and you're from these shores, and you're not you're not used to that climate. Yes. Yeah. That
0: That's the thing, I, I think, because it doesn't matter when you look back at these historical fights that went the wrong way for the champion or, you know, the the favorite. Sometimes the what ifs and the maybes are too late and the next fighters can learn from them, you know, because. You, they look at the conditions and they look at the the build up and the preparation for the fight, and they say they should have done that differently or they could have done that differently. And even we have that now at the moment, I suppose, with Anthony Joshua. I I see that he's going around the states looking at different coaches and stuff. So I, I think you get that a lot where when there's a bit of an upset, um, things change and people have to reevaluate, don't they?
1: Yeah, for for sure. I think you know. A debrief or a review of what what you've done in, in your training cycle and, and obviously the outcome of your performance. Then you know everything is laid out to bear. You know you got to look at every part of what you're doing if you're if you're if you're continuously wanting to improve. And often we only look at those situations when we lose. When we win, we sort of push us over all the cracks and we, and we continue uh, to do the same things and maybe make the same mistakes. Uh, but yeah, as I said, usually is when you lose that we start to reflect and have a look at what uh, didn't go so well and then how can we improve going forward. So I think that is something that no matter whether we win, lose or draw, that's what we should be doing on a constant basis. You know, what went well, what didn't go so well, how can we make it better? Yeah. Do you think, you know, when it comes
0: to coaches and obviously fighters being with coaches for years, Do you think is it is it emotionally difficult for fighters, you know, to say, okay, things aren't especially in the professional world, I can imagine things aren't going so well for me. And I think I need to change coach. Is it kind of like losing a family member walking away?
1: It can be, you know, because, you know, often your coach uh, is, is sometimes like your father. It becomes like a parent to you, you know, and. You probably listen to you definitely listen to him more than what you listen to your father, right? <laughs> but, <clears throat> so, you know, my relationships and my coaches were yeah, my coach was like that, you know. But my coach, you know, was very, very uh, open-minded, and uh, he introduced me to other coaches because, you know, he 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 was self-aware and he knew that, you know, he had taken me to where he could take me. Everything that he knew, I knew. He had given it all to me from from the age of seven. And um, so then he introduced other coaches to me to give me other skills, which I thought it was, you know, as I became a coach uh, and, and began to reflect on his practices around me, I, I just thought it was phenomenal that how he would give, just say, for instance, the star guy in your gym uh, who was winning the titles, and he would actually pass him over to, to to somebody else, to another coach. Uh, but I thought it was a really smart one, you know. For one thing is, okay, he gained another coach you know, he also then gave me a new set of tools uh, to make me better at the time. So that's that's the piece for, for any coach that, you know, to always be looking to help develop your athletes, whether it's with you or with other people around you. And uh, never never get stuck in the, the greedy mode and, and the, the egoistic place where, you know, you're his coach and that's it. You know, yeah, expand them. Bring him out to other people; he will learn more. Going back there,
0: that to what you said there about expanding the the mindset, and you know, going to other coaches. I I know that myself. Even when I used to train in martial arts for years, and you know, you'd get some coaches who would be kind of like, "Oh, you know, if you're going outside this gym or trying other styles." It's kind of your you're testing the loyalty. But then some coaches are very open minded and they're like, No, because you can learn discipline and you can learn techniques and stuff from other styles. And this is the point that, you know, we, we can't be that insecure to think that if they're not, if they're going to leave, they're not going to leave, and so on. Because the point is, if somebody is happy with you, they'll stay. But if they need to change something, they're going to go anyway. So I think it's a good thing to let them explore and see what else they can add to it. And definitely, as you said, when you reach a level where your coach is honest with you and says, "Listen, maybe I can't give you any more. Maybe you need to move on and expand your mindset."
1: Yeah, no, I think it's, it's a great trait in. In the, in the coach, you know, I think that the need to be, obviously, their athlete is the first uh, point of contact and the first thing that they should, welfare, athletes' welfare is the, the best, the first thing that should be on their mind and how, you know, can they help him or her achieve their their best and um, whether that's with them or with somebody else and I think uh, if, you, if you do it properly, you know, the, the, those athletes will always be with you and always be thankful to you for uh, the knowledge and the skill set that you gave them helped help them perform at their best. Yeah.
0: So, Billy, just changing tack a little bit. I, I, I was reading there, actually, that you, you were sick with COVID this year. Did that hit you very hard? Or
1: Yeah, I was in, actually, we we're in uh, Spain, in the training camp, uh, sorry, competition. And uh, we, obviously, again, tomorrow we get tested. So I'm trying to be mindful <laughs> again. Uh, we get tested before we, before we head back. Well, I'm heading back to Ireland, but the rest of the team were heading back to the States. and um, Anyway, yeah, I got tested. and I showed up. I didn't feel unhealthy. I didn't feel anything. And it showed up. I tested positive. But a day or two later, <clears throat> I did um, begin to... I, I spent yeah, 10 days in a room in Spain on my own. <clears throat> it wasn't pretty. It wasn't pretty. But, I, you know, I was bad enough. But I wasn't <clears throat> really sick. Badly, badly sick. I had no energy. I was completely exhausted. Um, I just lay in the bed for... Had a good rest, maybe, you know. <laughs> and then after 10 days, then I had done the quarantine and I was able to get back on the plane and get out. Yeah. It had no detrimental effect on me, uh, just the fact that I had it for that period of time and it, it isn't nice uh, to have. And thankfully, I uh, recovered, no problem.
0: But me and my wife got it early in 2020, when one or two months after, you know, because we're living in Spain, obviously. And, um, it was, um, yeah, it was like that, it was an eight or nine day thing, and, as you said, you just you know you you rest in the bed and you kind of feel like okay, I'm well rested, I'm gonna get up, and ten minutes later you're walking around and you feel you know shagged again. And you're thinking, what the hell? It's like I I went ten rounds with Tyson, and um, you have to go back to bed again. And unfortunately, that's just all it is every day. And it's a, it's a slow process, and it can be kind of boring. You've watched enough telly and read books and slept enough, and you want to get out of it, don't you?
1: For sure, yeah. I was just sleeping in a I presume. It's like being in prison. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to knock the door every day and to lift, to lift food three times a day on my doorstep. And that was. So- yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like that with my
0: kids. They'd be coming into the door and they're like, Dad, can I become like, no, 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 no. So, you know, it's like visiting hours are not for another while. So it's a, it's a hard one. But I imagine, you know, at least I was in my home, but I can imagine being in a hotel, it's pretty frustrating too.
1: Yeah, I'm and Everybody has gone back home. And yeah, it was uh and then I I couldn't go home at the time either, and yeah, so I I was heading back to the states as well. So it was it was frustrating, but I think you know at the time some of the guys wanted to stay with me, and and I told them, look, I'm big and ugly enough to look after myself. Once you're bringing food here every day, I'll be good. You don't need to hang around. So I got the rest of the team home, and I stayed there and went through it.
0: Yeah, because I actually uh, I had um, a, a goal with dancer Kahal uh, Keneally from. Um he's from around with there and he's one of Michael Flatley's, you know, Lord of the dance dancers. And he was telling us on the show that they were in quarantine in Taiwan. I think it was Taiwan for two weeks. And it was like that where basically all the dancers had to shift the beds and, um, you know, so they they weren't sick, but they were in, in quarantine. So they had to shift the beds, put them up against the wall, do all their dance routines and their exercises and training in the hotel room. So, it's amazing in in that space you have to make everything work and I'm sure for you guys and other teams who boxing teams who have been in quarantine, you probably have guys
1: training in the room a lot yeah we've done that we've done a lot of that we, we've used the car park we, we've we stayed six to ten feet apart outdoors no <coughs> contact uh training multiple times uh, one boxer at a time to get through a whole team was taking a whole day just to do a shadow boxing session, you know. So we've worked and uh, we've look at it. At the end of the day, we ended up in – our Olympic training center was closed for a year and a half and uh, because of COVID. And we ended up uh, using a disused Macy's store in Colorado Springs and we converted that into a boxing gym and we trained there. So that's how we prepared for the Olympic Games. Really? And how, how did that work then that the,
0: they were able to let you train there but not in the Olympic Centre? They
1: were afraid because there were some people in the training Centre that are resident athletes and uh, some of them had some immune uh, compromised systems and they were afraid that someone was going to get, get COVID and maybe die. So um, there didn't let anybody train there but we could train, the, as you said, we could train the Macy's. So it was a bit ridiculous at the time but... At the end of the day, we made it work, you know, we knew this games, these Olympic games were going to happen, and and even though they postponed it for a year, we still had to be ready whenever we got to go-ahead for it, and thankfully, Macy's store helped us get ready for the games and have a successful one.
0: That's really good. Fair play to Macy's. Uh, Because I imagine for a lot of teams that went to the Olympics this year, they... Probably look back and, you know, however well their performance was, however, you know, well they did, I'm sure there were some teams were thinking, wow, if it wasn't for COVID now, could we have done better? And I know you can't look back and say what if or have regrets, but you can also see how it had impacted the training and the preparation for lots of teams, no?
1: For sure. But, you know, there was quite a few teams. And this is some of the mantra that I I started with. Guys, this game is going to go ahead. Right, And, you know, in a few years' time, people forget about the pandemic, right? How many of us, none of us remembered, obviously, the last one, 100 years ago. But it only was brought to our attention when when this pandemic happened. Oh, yeah, we had one 100 years ago, right? Like, nobody's going to remember. They'll remember who the gold medalist was. They'll remember who the medalists were, maybe. But they'll definitely remember who the gold medalist was, right, like, for this Olympic Games and there'd be, there'd be no asterisk saying it was a pandemic games. <laughs> so we needed to be ready. You know, a lot of the teams, you know, the Chinese, the Russians, you know, all those guys were, were preparing. They didn't, their training centers weren't closed. They were all open and working, getting ready for the Olympic games. And we had to have the mindset that this is going to happen. We needed to be ready no matter what. And at the end of the day, when we stand in that ring and the, the bell goes, there is no excuses. You can't have an excuse.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. It, it, it's true like because, you know, once it comes down to just the two fighters in the ring, all the excuses go out the window because, you know, regardless of what things you could have done differently he can say the same thing and that's always the case and you see it in lots of big fights where people say well you know if i had done this differently or if i'd listened to my coach about this but that that moment is gone you can only move on and change it for the next fight and you know as you as that that famous saying you know you, you you um you you lose and you learn you know yeah so, so let me let's go back a little bit. I want to go back to obviously you growing up in Wexford, you know, because we kind of go back and, a little and 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 look at your your life a little. So, what was it like for you growing up in Wexford? Your parents were both from Wexford,
1: yes, yes. Yeah, my my dad is is from uh, Wexford town, and my mother is from a little place called Screen, which is uh, seven miles seven miles outside of Wexford town, very close to uh, Curriclaw Beach. Um. Yeah, she was from the village there, and uh, I don't know how they met, but they met up anyway. So, and they had six of us. Uh, I'm the oldest of uh, six children, uh, five five boys and one girl. Um, yeah, we grew up in uh, a working class house in the state, um, Wolfstown Villas. Um, it was produced uh, many, many actually Irish champions, and um, there's been four four oh. lead champions uh, in in Wexford town. Uh, over the years, and three of them come from that street. And there's something like 40, 40, I lost the the count, but there's something like 40-odd national titles in boxing have been won from that street. And uh, also Lee Lee Chin's mother, Lee Chin the Hurler, his mother, Anne-Marie, is from that street as well. And Lee grew up, spent a lot of his childhood in that street. So it's a a, a haven for athletic (laughs) uh, development. Wow.
0: And, and you know, it's it's really good because, you know, when they say sometimes, oh, there's something in the water. But, like, definitely, I think if if you live in a place, whether it be in a state or a town, and there are champions and people coming out of it who are very driven, it can have an effect on other people, can't it?
1: For sure. I think one of the main things for, in the boxing world was the coach was in that street. Uh, and, you know, as I say, every house seemed to have Five or six kids at the time, you know, the house estate of over a hundred houses with five or six kids, you know, so there was plenty of talent in the street for <laughs> for training and what have you. So, yeah, there wasn't, there was no playstations either. So <laughs> we had to we had to amuse ourselves in the streets, you know.
0: I I have a I have a picture in my mind whether it's wrong or right of this like a state with a green in the middle or something and the people out shadowboxing and and, and sparring and mitts was, was was it like that a bit? It was
1: it wasn't a green, but it was a there was a a, a ring in the middle of not a boxing ring, but a, it was a it was a circle. It was like a three way avenue. You come in one way, and you go down to the to the right, and then to the, up to the left. And in the middle, there was a square. If you would call it for the want of a better word. Yeah, there was plenty of activities, and plenty of football games and soccer.
0: When you think of people, let's say coming from working class backgrounds, you know, and they. What they do to train or what they do to push themselves, whether whether they're really driven in that sport or something. I mean, it's kind of I used to laugh, you know, when I'd look at, for example, that Rocky IV and, you know, after he had all the riches and he went to Russia and he went back to the ground roots, basic training in the snow with the tools and implements. And I used to be laughing, I was saying to my wife, I remember when I was young and I was like starting martial arts training and I found this old axle of a trailer and geez, and it weighed a lot. And that was my dumbbells because we were like a working class family and we couldn't afford an awful lot. And and I had I built things out of wood and I. I I made kind of a home gym with metal implements I found around the shed and everything, you know. So the thing is, if you have an interest as a as a teen or a child, you will find ways to do it. You'll find ways to make a rope into a skipping rope or make, as I said, iron bars into weights and everything. You'll do it if you want to do it, won't you?
1: For sure, that's really how we lived our life, you know. I had that axle of a of a, of a car somewhere in our gym as well, you know, for for weightlifting. So. Yeah, you make do with what you got, you know, you don't need all the bells and whistles to go with it. All you need is the right attitude and and a lot of determination and you can make it happen.
0: Yeah, and I used to laugh because the axle was great, but the hand grips, if you'll call them, they were like square and very bulky. So your your hand was like, it was like holding two baseball bats lifting it. And uh, it was kind of uncomfortable, but you made it work, you know, and of course... You know, if you wanted to add weight to it, it was either a bucket with something in it or something. You know what I mean? You had to really improvise. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, for sure. Turned turned a lot of us into entrepreneurs.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so when when you were growing up there in in Wexford, you know, did you get turned on to the boxing straight away, or did you do other sports?
1: Yeah, so I really started probably around the same time, seven, six, seven years of age. I started playing Gaelic football. Uh, I started playing hurling, uh, I started playing soccer, and then obviously boxing. So when I went to school in the Christian Brothers School in Wexford Town, uh, which is 500 yeah, meters from from my home, um, in that in that school and on the schoolyard, to this day, it still has a, it still has a boxing gym. Um, so it's it one of the, first, the only schools in the country that has a boxing gym on it. But uh, I started boxing there, and I didn't find out until years later that my dad had asked the Christian brothers to take me into the boxing club to try and curb curb my wild ways on the streets and where I lived. <laughs> so, as is, as is. And I just fell in love with it, really, you know. And, and I love Gilly games, and I love soccer, and I played all of those to a decent level, and played through the county you know, under fourteen and minor, and uh, and. And, and then made a decision, I suppose. I'd won, by the time I was minor, I was captain of the minor football team. I was wing back on the minor hurling team and I was four times Irish boxing champion. So I decided, you know, well, it was probably decided for me in the Leinster hurling final in Crow Park. And we were winning with by five points with six minutes to go against Kilkenny and uh, they got a, they beat us by a point. And I threw my hurl down that day in Crow Park and I said, "The hell with this. I'm going to go to, I'm going to go to Libby games. I don't want to rely on 14 other people. I want to do it myself. And so I started to focus more, more on myself then as a boxer. And then obviously go to, to, to achieve my goal of going to the games.
0: Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? When people like are very good sports people in a few different sports, Um, you know, like for example, obviously with, with, katie taylor she very good soccer player as well but then sometimes if it doesn't work for you in one direction i mean it's good that you can say okay i'm going to try this and maybe work at this but sometimes the sports are very different so for you kind of did you feel that initially you wanted to be like a ga hurler or you wanted to be or did you feel like no it's always going to be boxing for me is the main thing
1: no i think uh, i definitely like most Wexford people wanted to play for Wexford, you know um particularly at the time hurling uh, was was big and I wanted to be the next Tony Dorn or the next Ned Boogie or, you know, whoever it was. So hurling, in, you know, was it was big in my family. Uh, boxing wasn't so big and, and it was just, that for me, boxing, you know, and it's a well-known fact that playing multiple sports at a young age uh, helps you in your, in your chosen sport. You know, you get speed, coordination, reaction, agility, from all those other sports that are going to help you in the, in the chosen sport uh, you know either I chose the sport or the sport chose me I think um, uh, so definitely without doubt without playing all those other sports I don't think I'd have been as good or as successful in my in, in the sport that I chose
0: I don't know if you know do you know you know Jim McKee the singer? do you? no He's a boxer as well. He, so Jim Jim McKee um, was, I think he was an Irish champion at two or three years. He was on the show here last uh, last season with us. And but um, Jim was telling us, you know, when he grew up in, in the north, and for him, you know, he was like a. A Catholic living in a street of Protestants, and you know the usual thing that happens like that. He was bullied a lot, and he he took up boxing, and he went on to win a few Irish titles. Then, and he trained with Wayne McCullough for a while. And uh, but it was interesting when he was talking about what boxing did for him and how it you know gave him that confidence, and 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 not not just in that sport, but to do other things in his life as well. So, for you, when you started boxing, was there? You know, was it mainly about the sport, or was it to build up who you were as a teen? You know, did you feel like, okay, I need it for my
1: insecurities,
0: or I need it because of bullies, or was there any other reasons?
1: No, really. You know, there's lots of kids at that age group joined the club. You know, in in the school at the time. So, to me, it was just like I was joining the joining the boxing to see how you know. Have a go at it and try it out. There was no insecurities at seven years of age. I didn't have any insecurities. I didn't know. I didn't know what. You know, I was just playing sports and, and doing as much things as I could. Um, and um, yeah, but, so there was no insecurities, and I wasn't trying to build up my own confidence. Or I did feel, you know, maybe as a young lad that I was probably shy. Uh, you, you might find it hard to believe now, but um, <laughs> I did probably feel that I was a bit shy and a bit. But, um, you know, boxing definitely helped me in that respect, traveling around your county first and then traveling outside your county to, you know, to other parts and to other provinces, which is a great experience. And meeting people and and meeting friends from all over the the country, all over the island. And then, you know, as things progressed, they end up traveling the world and meeting people from all over the world and different cultures. And and, uh, and it's definitely been an educational uh, piece for me. Uh, learning lots lots about the world
0: it's interesting you said that they're actually about the you know starting it at seven for example because i think for some teenagers obviously who are 12 and 13 and take up boxing or martial arts or any kind of sport contact sports for them probably you know there's lots of different reasons they really love the sport but for some it's to get some discipline or maybe the dad might say listen go into the gym you know you need a bit of Control, um, but for others they gain that confidence from it. I know myself when I was that age, you know, I I was kind of shyer as well, and you know, a bit of a messer. Like, but but the thing was, I think when I started training, and it helped my confidence, and it helped you kind of see who you are and who you could be. So I think obviously we've known for years in boxing gyms around the world, it, it shapes boys and girls. Into who they're to become in later years, doesn't it?
1: Well, boxing changes lives, without doubt. It's taking people, you know, from all walks of life, you know, and and put them on a straight and narrow, and teaches, taught them discipline, taught them self respect, you know, all the things that you want in a good person. And boxing teaches you all that, and uh, gives you self awareness, gives you self belief, gives you self confidence, you know, all those things. I you know, and 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 being respectful in the meantime as well. Yes.
0: Well, well, that's a big part of it, isn't it? Because, you know, it doesn't matter what what age you are. Obviously, you have to learn respect and you have to earn it too. But I think with those kind of sports, you know, that teach you how to go in, how to take a loss, how to take a punch and come back from it and – you know, realize that you have these, you know, weapons and you can use them, but in the right scenario and for the right reason. And I think it's a great thing because kids learn from that early age, look, you know, I can defend myself, but I don't need to. I can walk away as well. And and I can look after myself and my friends, but I'm just going to defuse the situation.
1: Yeah, look, it is it is a great master of discipline. Uh, Any combat sport is, you know, and the uh... You know, if, if you behave badly, you know, I remember at the time, if, if I was to be in a in a scrap or a fight outside of the gym, I, I would have been, I'd have been thrown out of the gym. And I, I loved it that much. That I wasn't going to take that chance of being in any trouble outside. So it really did teach us a lot of discipline and uh, self-respect and self-awareness and being able to diffuse the situation or walk away from the situation,
0: you know. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is that in lots of gyms and, you know, halls and stuff around the the country lots of lads went in with the intention of you know you know being tough and strong and being able to beat up anybody but then they realized that's not what it's about and even fellas who might have been bullies or have been a bit you know free with the hands and the streets realized that that's not the way it works and in here in in the gym you have to learn to control it and use it at the right time
1: yeah, look, it, it, it's a sweet science. That's why it's called a sweet science. It's, 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 you know, it is a very skillful sport. You know, it's not two people just throwing punches at each other. There is a hell of a lot of movement and technique and skill and ability and conditioning that goes with that. And, uh, you know, you got to learn all those pieces if you're going to be successful at it. Yeah. So when you were in Wexford,
0: obviously then, you know, and you were in school and you were training, did you do other jobs then in your teens and late teens? Like, did you, how, where did you transition to from school? So I, I
1: went to, yeah, as I said, the CBS. And I left, when when I went to secondary school, I went to the Wexford Vocational School or the tech, as we call it. So I went to, I went to the tech probably with the with the belief of becoming an apprentice. Um, and that's what happened uh, when I'd done my Intermediate cert, as we call it at the time. I don't know what to call it now. <laughs> yeah, the the, the inter cert, right? yeah. The uh, when I got my inter cert, uh, when I got the results then and I got a job as an apprentice in John Jackman Engineering, uh, which is a big engineering firm in Wexford Town. Uh, so I went, I left there at you know, the at, at at young age, almost um, 15 years of age, and went to become an apprentice. And by the time I was 20, I was a fully qualified fitter welder. Uh, I went to Waterford, uh, to Anko in Waterford. If people remember what Anko was, it was Foss. At one stage, I don't know what it's called now. Um, so oh. I went to An- I went on-
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, it could be yeah.
1: something. I went to Anko. Another I name I went page. to Anko for a year and, and stayed in Waterford and came home on weekends and what have you, and uh, lived in Diggs. Uh, and then went back there for three months every year until I finished my trades exam. So we did our junior trades exams the first year. And then at the end of your four years, you did your senior trades exams so you had to pass all those to qualify as a fitter. And uh, that's what I did and I worked in John Jackman Engineering for I think it was like actually i f I've, I've funnily worked it out. I, I did twelve years in 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 fitting, in working in that industry and uh and then I I got a job um at the end of the nineteen ninety two a couple a milk company approached me to take over a milk run. Uh, and uh took over a milk run in Wexford and I did that for 12 years. I was a milkman for 12 years. Uh, And then I got the opportunity to work, uh, to go as a head coach in Ireland. I applied for the job and did an interview and obviously got the job. And I did that for 12 years. So I had three careers. It's funny, none of it was planned. All of it just happened. I I had three careers. One as a fitter welder, one as a milkman, one as a, a, a boxing coach in Ireland. It all lasted twelve years, and now I'm, and now I'm in my sixth year in the United States as a coach. <laughs> so I don't know whether it's twelve years, 12 year cycles or what. Yeah, it could
0: be a, it could be a twelve year stint, you know. But but that's great. I because I, I I love people like that that are not afraid to change and try things, you know, because. I think you have to do it. I, I've spoken to many guests who've done that as well. And I think it's a great thing, you know, because I'm like that. I, if I feel like I want to change, you know, I, I started out like you. I I was uh, I was a carpenter and I did my junior trades and senior trades. And I did that for like 15 years as a carpenter. And then I went teaching music and then I went teaching English. And now I'm podcasting. And I just I think you, you shouldn't be afraid to do different things and to go down different avenues because you, you your real talent could be there you know what i mean you never know but you can always do things side by side but i mean it's great that story obviously you know being the fitter welder and then being, being the milkman on the milk run and then going to the boxing coach i mean th- what a transition
1: yeah they don't really they don't really <laughs> uh, align, align to each other but you know i always did if the fitter welding you know it was always a means to an end you know John Jackman Engineering were, were, was a good company to work with and they were good to me. And, you know, I worked work at Pierce Engineering as well. And my goal was was to go to the Olympic Games. And I needed some money, you know. I needed to live. There was no funding out there. There was no sports council grants, you know. So there was no sponsorship or anything like that. So you were, you were training twice a day and trying to hold down a job as well. And, you know as I said, my drive and my ambition was to go to the Games, and those roles were a means to an end until I achieved what I wanted to achieve.
0: Going to the Olympic Games, obviously you were like 25 then, yeah. were you around that yeah. age?
1: Yeah, I, I, In 88, 84, yeah. I had really missed out, you know, I had um, I, I was national champion in 83, first time uh, and, and won it again in 84 and I was uh, left behind, it was like you know going back over the old system where there was 30 people in a, in a meeting room, deciding to pick your Olympic team which to send six boxers. And yeah, I was number seven on the list and didn't make the team and make the cut. Nobody from Oxford in the, in the corridors of power and to, to make a call or make a shout for me, for my position. But and I know the, 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 the team that was there, I had the second best record of the team in the previous year, previous two years. So I was pretty good at about that. And, uh, nearly, nearly actually finished me boxing altogether all and um, I, I, I walked, I, I was in the gym, I was in Dominic Cairn gym, which wasn't, I used to use the days that I wasn't in the boxing club and I was there with a sauna suit on me, trying to keep down to the 10 stone weight limit and the RT news came on and the sports news came on and they said that the Irish team for the Olympic, the, the Irish Olympic boxing team has just been announced and I wasn't on it. I heard it. I heard it on the radio. That's crazy. Isn't and I walked. It? I walked. I walked out of the gym that day and didn't. That was me. And uh, didn't go back to a gym till October. I went back playing hurling and football and doing the things I loved. And uh, nearly, nearly lost me to the game. Really, I, I was completely sickened by it. But I stayed at it.
0: And, that that's kind of the worst part about lots of sports is the politics. And, and we know, especially with boxing, there's so much corrupted politics and lots of crazy things have happened over the years. But when you look at like that, that's not where you should have heard it. I mean, you should have heard it from somebody else, but somebody decided it was quicker. It was better to release a press release and get it out that way. But it breaks relationships, doesn't
1: it? Yeah, look, it breaks people, you know, you know, I don't understand what, what young people have put in time and effort. And I'm always mindful of that because, you know, at the end of the day, I have to make hard choices for athletes. You know, we had a selection procedure for this team to come to this world championships. And we had two athletes in each weight in the gym and working, training rigorously, training hard and not a whole lot between them. And you, you, you've got to make a call on it and, and maybe break somebody's heart. And I know because I've been there. I've been what it's like. But you know, the only way to give it to him is is straight in the face. You know, I meet him face to face and have to sit down and have the conversation. And I've I, I and that's what I do. And that's a lesson I learned from what 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 happened to me. Uh, Someone I need somebody to sit down and tell tell me and explain to me why. And you know where where my future lies and what I need what I need to do to be better or to be selected the next time.
0: Yeah. But that's what I mean. You need that honesty. And it's like, I don't know, sometimes that's lacking in people and organizations where it doesn't matter if you're applying for a job and they're not accepting you. No, they should say to you, listen, sorry, you haven't made the shortlist and so on, but thanks for applying and so on. But lots of companies decide they don't want to do that anymore. But even in that sense there where you're a young boxer And you've given everything and you've, you know, poured your heart into that sport. And then, you know, that you don't hear through the right channels. It's demoralizing. And I suppose for a lot of people, it can make them leave the sport, can't
1: it? Oh, for sure. Yeah, because, you know, you invest so much and everything is into it. Your heart is set on it. You know, it's, uh, as I said, it's heartbreaking at times. And um, sometimes it can be very difficult to move on from.
0: Yeah, so so when you went to the Olympics in in eighty eight, obviously, and 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 you, I I I think you you were like, was it thirty third or the position? What was your? How did you feel it
1: went for you in that? Oh, it was a disaster boxing wise. <laughs> it was a disaster. You know, look, I was fortunate enough by by that stage. You know, uh, I was captain of the Irish team, and you know, I I spent ten years, I suppose, overall on it, but. At that stage, it was probably five years on the team and yeah, going there was amazing. It was was the most amazing time of my life, uh, to be honest with you, having to fulfill your dream. And I remember standing, myself and Michael Crute, who was my roommate, and uh, we stood stood in the center of the the pitch uh, at the Olympic Stadium when they were lighting the flame. You know, we looked at each other and said, we made it. We had actually made it. You know, I had obviously Michael did it on his first attempt, attempt, and I had to wait a, a, a games to to make it. And so it was a, it was phenomenal in the boxing sense. Then I, I had been to the test event, had a trial, a test event in in sorry in in Seoul, uh, and it was actually it revolved around St Patrick's Day because they had a little bit of a parade for us. But um, I remember boxing there, and, and the guy I fought the guy from Korea and he was Asian Games gold medalist, and he was um, a world medalist, and I knocked him out in the first round, knocked him out 12, the referee didn't even count, you know, it was, it was an amazing victory, and then who did I draw on my first fight at the Libby Games, but the same guy, and uh, he, yeah, yeah. and uh, he beat me, he beat me at the Games, I got cut above and below the eye, which i Never get caught, but um, yeah, I got caught and stopped in the third round. And it was a complete and utter disaster, uh, boxing-wise. Um, not what I had planned, not what I had expected, but um, and it took a long time to get over that. But
0: yeah. With the amateur competitions, you know, and in the, obviously with the different rounds, you can face the same fighter, you know, a very short time later. And whereas, let's say, in the professional ranks, you fight someone... And even if there's a rematch, it's six months to a year later. So in that, obviously, when you knocked him out the first time, there was a lot going through his head, and he wanted a bit of vengeance. And he thought, "How am I going to do things differently?" So the coin can be flipped, can't it? On the yeah, next fight. Yeah, sure. Look
1: at the end of the day, as we speak, we spoke earlier. You know, you learn more from your defeats than you do from your victories. You know, for me, like you know, he was. I had knocked him out in the first. The first round, that was the end of him. I didn't didn't think I'd ever see him again. I didn't think he'd be on, he would be on the, the Korean team, to be honest with you, uh, after that. Uh, so I moved on, didn't learn anything from it. And uh, he obviously learned a hell of a lot.
0: <laughs> do you think, you know, being, obviously, being in the ring, you know, from your experience and then being in the corner looking on as the coach, do you think that for any fighter, when they fight, the, the, somebody who they've beaten you know whether it's as i said in a short time or months later do you think that person is more dangerous then because they've been beaten and they feel they've nothing to lose
1: oh absolutely there's no doubt and as i said you you, you often learn learn more in, in defeat than you do in victory Uh yeah definitely the guy and he has all the all the motivation is probably with him as well you know and it can it can be a slippery banana skin for a lot of athletes to go back and fight someone you've you've beaten before
0: yeah and you know it's kind of especially when fighters are well matched you know it's kind of climbing that mountain getting over the mountain getting to the top and getting over it but then obviously in a rematch or you know a second fight you have to do it again and it's very hard because they've kind of had a chance whether it be days or weeks or months to reevaluate maybe nowadays obviously being able to analyze some video what they did wrong and then come back so it's a they're a totally different animal and maybe they're not as nervous you know or they're not as weary as they were the first time
1: yeah look at as you said all the motivation is in their corner you know and and as i said they learn they learn to have a lot they're going to study they're going to make sure they're ready for the next one and you know, sometimes human nature, you can become complacent. You've already beaten a guy or you've already knocked out a guy. And you think this guy, you know, hasn't got a hope. <laughs> uh, but often, often can prove to be wrong.
0: One question I want to ask you is obviously, when we look at, you know, obviously, you know, famous Olympians from Ireland, Michael Carruth and, you know, Kelly Harrington and, and Casey Taylor, and, you know, people have done really well. But you being there, being a boxer and that, you know, Platform and be, ha, being a coach there as well. Give us an insight into, like, mentally how tough it is for these athletes when they reach the Olympics. Is is it everything they've been planning for, or is it like a huge culture shock?
1: You know, the Olympic Games is, you know, we're here right now at the at the World Championships. All the same boxers are in the Olympic Games, but the, the difference is there's a media circle or cycle that goes around the Olympic Games or circus. That goes around the Olympic Games. And the attention that it that it attracts, um, you don't see it at these world championships. You don't see it at the European championships. You don't see it at the Pan Am Games. But when you go to the Olympics, everybody turns up, right? And all the, all the media will be trying to contact you, all the media, you know, so there is, a, there is a lot of money. When you walk into that village, they got 10,000 of the best athletes in the world all in the, congregated in the same spot. It's it's like Disneyland. You know, it's just a wonderful yeah. place to be in, and it can really affect people. The other pieces, you know, getting to the Olympic Games is so difficult that when you get there, a lot of them, a lot of people can settle for the fact that they've been there. Yeah, I've made it. I've made it. my dream come true. I've actually got to the games. But you know, they got to reset their goal. They got to forget that they forget that they have to reset their goal to to achieving something there. So there's a hell of a lot of distractions at the Olympic Games, Uh, you know, with, as I said, with media, with the attention that you're going to get, with the worldwide publicity that you're going to get. So it, uh, it is a very difficult thing to do, is to become that Olympic gold medalist.
0: Yeah. And of course, like you said, with the media and with companies and sponsors and everything, everybody kind of wants a piece of you then as well, especially when you come back, if you've done really well. But I can imagine going over there. Yeah, there are some people like like when you said you and Michael Carruth were standing on the field thinking we've made it. But the truth is, that's only 20 percent of the way, because then you have to go and do the hard work.
1: Yeah, for sure. You know, we had made it to that point. But I mean, uh, you know it was a learning curve for Michael you know Michael learned you know had a bad games as well and came back to the next one and won the gold medal you know he, he took his learnings from from the Olympics he saw the fanfare he saw the you know the circus that went on with, with the games and, and then prepared himself for the next ones and made sure that he got everything right and, and had the fantastic games and it still is Ireland's only male Olympic gold medalist you know it's fantastic.
0: When you, you know, were, you came back and so on, and then obviously you were, you know, thinking you were working away and doing your work, and what was the transition into coaching? You know, what brought about that? Did you say, well, hold on, you know, I think I can move into this area. Did you? Were you boxing and coaching at the same time, or did you just kind of leave the boxing and go into the coaching? Well, first of all, I came back,
1: you know, um, devastated from the games. I was ashamed. Um, the whole, whole of Wexford was behind me. I felt I let everybody down. My family, my friends, everything. I was like, I was in a really bad place for for quite a while. Um, but I went back to work. Um, I worked in at that time. I worked in Pierce's Engineering. Um, I went back to work, and you know, all the guys, all the all, the, all my workmates, <laughs> uh, bring you back down to the ground pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> can yeah, you imagine, I can the slag, imagine. The slagging, you know, my nickname became Canvasback. And uh, <laughs> so, the, 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 yeah, you, you need to leave your feelings outside the door when you went when you're to work, there But I think that was like, I got back on a Friday, and Monday I was straight back into work. And uh, so that grounded me pretty quick. And then, you know, my wife was pregnant, and we had a mortgage. I needed to work. You know, I couldn't, there was no full-time funding to be an athlete. And um, so that's, I went back to work and uh, <clears throat> sort of stopped for a while. I went, I went to the club, I went up to the club and help out. I just felt, always felt that I was going to be involved with the sport, but I didn't actually have a plan to be a coach. I just transitioned. I went up there helping out a few guys that were training. I actually ended up doing a bit of sparring. You know, I was still pretty young. I was 25, 26 years of age. And um, in good shape, helping out coaching, and then I, I started back training. Uh, to keep myself fit, I felt I was getting out of shape. I started training and I ended up going into the national championships the following year at a weight above the Olympic weight I was at, and uh, I ended up winning it. <laughs> so, but then I ended up being back in the national team, and you know, I went back to my the, the Pierce Engineering, and Mick Miller was the who was a former boxer, where Mick Miller was the manager and I went to make look at, he said, Mick said to me, oh, congratulations, Billy, you won the national championship. It was, it was brilliant. And I said, thank you for the few days off. He gave me a few days off to do it. And he said, what, 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 what are you going to do now? I got picked the next day. I selected a team to go to America for two weeks on a tour and a couple of fights over there. Right. And I said, look, I'm have to make a matter being selected to go to the States. Uh, for, but I said look I'm not going to ask you for any more time off you've been good enough to me and I just want to keep my you know he said look go ahead go to the States he said uh, with, you can work in the hours when you come back I look after you wow so he like he got me back into the sport I wasn't I I was more mindful to keep my job and yeah, obviously I had a wife expecting wife and uh, and a mortgage to look after and anyway I got back into it and went over there and and, and kept going then until eventually I became champion again. And that was 89, 90, 91. And, and then, well, in 1991, I decided to come back down to uh, my my boxing weight, as it felt internationally, um, which was welterweight. And um, I had been like light light middleweight champion. And funny, this is funny, well, Michael Crute was like Welterweight champion. So I came down to Welterweight. He moved up to Welterweight. There was a current Welterweight champion there. Eddie Fisher was his name. So they didn't seed anybody. So in 1991, the first two names out of the hat was Michael Crute and Billy Walsh. We fought each other in the first round of the stadium, national championships, with nobody at it. Uh, I, was, I was a fortunate victor. I uh, went on to win the championship that year. Then went to the top eight in the world championships. And uh the following year then we came back and they seated us and myself and Michael met in the final. Uh and that was January nineteen ninety two and um uh, Michael beat me uh to become champion and go to the Olympic Games and uh he won his gold medal there.
0: Wow. It's it's amazing, isn't it, when you when you put it into that timeline and you see the connections like if we if we start at the gold medal and go backwards and you see how things were and you know who he beat and who he fought in the national championships and who you know the fact he fought once and he beat him and so on it's really interesting isn't it because for you in your mind you were probably thinking jesus could i have done it could i have got that you know was i better this time could i have been better in the olympics this time than the last yeah time? for
1: sure look at everybody has those doubts and wonders you know and and maybe that's what drives us on in peace, But, uh, yeah, I definitely, uh, you know, had those thoughts. You know, could I have won that gold medal? You know, I don't know. Michael, his performances out there were fabulous and um, outstanding. He beat he beat the Cuban in the final who was, at the time, he was unbeatable. He was unbeatable. He had won three world championships. He was like, he was a star. And Mike, Michael uh, beat him. And would I have ever beaten him? I don't think so, I don't know. Nobody knows, but anyway, it was, yeah, it was a, as his man said, a moment in time.
0: You know, even if it wasn't to be for you going on to the Olympics and winning a gold there, I suppose what's really important is that for Michael Carruth's career, you were pivotal in it because you probably helped him become the fighter he was for that Olympic final.
1: Yeah, I think that often happens, you know, um, the quality of people around you and, and, and the quality of your opposition obviously makes you better and you know myself and michael were were, were great mates we were roommates for five years and and uh, we traveled the world together and we were sparring partners all along and then we ended up <laughs> in the same weight division but you know the people around you would definitely help you be, become the person you want to be or you know and to push you and i don't know if for a fact that darren sutherland kenny egan being in the irish program wayne mccullough you know sorry uh Patty Barnes and Michael Conlon and Katie Taylor—they all sparred with. They all they all made each other better because they were all sparring and training with each other, pushing each other every day. They all made made us made themselves champions in their own right. And again, it was about the opposition that they had in training every day that helped push them to that level.
0: Yeah, that's it. So when you got into the coach and we'll say full time, then you know you 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 moved from, from your job um, and you went coaching full-time. Was that, you know, did you have great ideas but find the, find it hard to put them in practice? Because, you know, like a lot of coaches in a lot of facilities, in a lot of sports, you might go in with great ideas, but then maybe the facilities aren't there or the money's not there. So was it difficult at the start going into that, you know, the Irish coaching role?
1: Yeah, look, it was, it was obviously difficult. Um, we were in a bad place. Uh, If you consider, you know, people always, people think that, you know, Irish boxing has always produced uh, Olympic medals. But, you know, we've gone through lots of barren spells. We had gone through a barren spell since 92. You know, the time before 92 was 1980. You know, it was every generation or so that we were throwing up Olympic medalists. And we hadn't won any since 92. Michael Crude and Wayne McCullough gold and silver. You know, so we had gone through multiple games without it. We got to the stage where in 2000, we had one boxer at the Olympic Games. We only qualified one boxer. You know, things had changed in, in, in the world. The, the wall came down and the Soviet Union became so many different countries. Then they had to have qualification for the Olympic Games for boxing. Whereas before, prior to that, you could send a team, how many as you wanted, how many as you could afford. But now you had to qualify. Because there were so many different countries and so many different nations, so it became a difficult, a different place. And boxing had changed from three three-minute rounds to four two-minute rounds. It had gone from, you know, from the ten-point must or twenty-point must rule to a to a computer system. But Irish boxing had not changed. We didn't change with it. And as I say, in two thousand, we had nearly become the dodo at Olympic Games. We were nearly extinct. We had one boxer. A guy from Cork, Michael, Michael Roach. And we were ten months in the job. Uh, Gary Keegan started the high performance unit and employed me as the first coach. And we in ten months in the job we had one boxer at the at the Athens game. It was Andy Lee, who was the only boxer that qualified for, for Athens. You know, so we were nearly extinct. We were nearly gone from the games, right? you know, we had to completely change our culture, you know, completely develop a whole, a whole new system. We had a blank page when we got there. There was nothing to follow. We had to start off with a whole new system. And then we went from there, you know, to, thankfully, to Beijing and London, and we won seven Olympic medals. And In that time, at that time, Ireland had won 20, 27 medals, I think it was. We had won a quarter of the medals in the total history of Irish sport—not just boxing in sport, <laughs> uh, Olympic sport—we won in, in those four years. We won quarter of the medals that we had ever won. So it was it was a phenomenal time uh, to see the transition from where we are at to nearly being extinct to becoming this successful team to finishing in the top five of the Olympic Games in London. It was uh, it was great. It was great to be part of it. Yeah, because like you
0: said there with, with those seven medals, I mean, you know, when, when you look back at the, I don't want to say, that, well, with the medals hall that Ireland had under you, I mean, it's incredible. And it, you know, I, I think obviously a lot changed there, but obviously with everything, you know, maybe things don't change fast enough and, and things are, as we mentioned earlier, there's lots of politics and sport and you know, bureaucracy and and you can say, for example, let's move that ring over there and somebody comes in and says, no, no, the safety guidelines are this and da 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 da, and there's 10 different reasons why you can't move it and so on. So did you face a lot of bureaucracy and, and, you know, political decisions when you began to be a coach?
1: Yes, I think, you know, the answer is yes. But, you know, at the end of the day, Gary Keegan was the performance director. And Gary Keegan faced all of those. You know, I have to hand it in reflection because when Gary left, I took over his role as a performance director and I had to deal with a lot of the stuff that he had to deal with. You know, and Gary was great from protecting us as coaches from all the politics and all the bureaucracy that was going on and all the battles that he was having in the background. He just wanted us to be able to train the team he put together a fabulous team. Zoranti, he came from Georgia. You know, it was a breath of fresh air to, to Irish boxing. Taught us lots of new skills and new abilities to, to, to help us compete at Olympic level. And uh, as I said, Gary allowed us to do that. So, I, I, you know, there was roadblocks put in our way. You know, it's amazing. You know, the problem with it was, you know, we had a professional unit inside an amateur organization. And we kept seeing roadblocks being put in our way. The more success we were having, the more roadblocks we were getting put in our way to stop us from being successful, which is very hard to believe when we are all working for the same sport. We are all from the same sport and we're all looking for the same result, trying to make the sport successful. Uh, and unfortunately, this has continued. You know, it, it was a catalyst in, in Gary Keegan leaving at the end of you know, at the end of two thousand after the Beijing games he left and I took over his role. And then after before Rio, I left. And now we're in a situation where Bernard Dunn is in the same position right now and he's dealing with some problems and deciding whether he's gonna stay or not.
0: Yeah. And you know, obviously when Gary Keegan left, you as well as your own job, you took his job as well, and so you had an extra workload on you and You know, you can see how things could build up then if they weren't going your way. But what I want to ask you there is when you said, you know, they were putting roadblocks, why do you think that was? Like When you look back on it now, why do you think there was somebody trying to stop the progress?
1: I think somebody's jealousy. Um, I also, you know, felt, you know, uh, some of us would come in the face of, of boxing, where there's a hell of a lot of people doing a lot of hard work, voluntary all the voluntary work, which is, you know, I can't speak highly enough of the work that they do and the effort that they put in on on their own free time. Uh, But to see this this group of people that are getting all the attention and all the notice, uh, I just felt it was maybe jealousy uh, around that time, you know, and it was maybe a fact that they didn't have a whole lot to do with the success. And they felt that, Wanted to stop it, or wanted to take control of it. I, I, maybe some of them you need to ask, but (laughs) I don't know why. I don't really don't know why. Like I've been as as we spoke earlier, I'm. I was a seven year old. As a seven year old, I was part of the Irish Amateur Boxing Association, and 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 stayed there all through my career. You know, became national champ, elite champion, became captain of the Olympic team, became. The head coach became the performance director. I, I've been all IABA. I'm a product of the IABA, right? I'm one of the products. Of
0: yeah, you are. Your your yeah, your whole life is like, so, in this.
1: I don't understand why. You know, maybe somebody else needs to answer that question. But we were doing our best to make the sport the, the, one of the most popular sports. We were the, we are the we are the most success, successful sport in history. Olympic history. we were the most successful sport in the country at the time. You know, um. And all you know, all it was doing was bringing more kids into into the sport, bringing more attention to the sport, and then we you know we didn't capitalize on it like we should have, you know, financially to help to help the system become bigger and better.
0: And obviously, then you know it all came to a head between you and the IABA. And you know, I know you had said before. You know, I, I read in in one of your an article where obviously you were in a CC at the time and. You know, Michael Conlon had just done very well, and obviously, you knew the the time was up. You know, and you had to to go, and and obviously, it was very emotional for you, and you felt like you kind of had to leave the family, but they weren't giving you any choice. That must have been a really difficult time. Yeah, it was, one of my, it
1: was probably the most difficult time I've had. You know, because nobody really knew about it um, except people that are involved in the negotiations and everything. And I obviously kept it away from the team. Uh, You know, I spent a lot of lonely nights there contemplating the future, you know, uh, getting the result of, you know, some amendments that wanted on the contract and it all had no, 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 no. And I I knew then that uh, my number was up and my time was up, that it was time to go, that I could not work under those circumstances. Uh, So, yeah, and it was a joyous time because it was our best showing ever at the World Elite Championships. Where, you know, Michael Conham became Ireland's first ever gold medalist. You know, we had three medalists in that in that tournament. It was, it was phenomenal, and we were building. You know, from building from London, you know, into into Rio, and we had we had an exciting team. We had the best team we ever had going to. To Rio, we like we had maybe three guys in the top two in the world. We had Katie Taylor number one in the world, we had Michael Connor number one in the world. You know, we had what a phenomenal team we had, you know, going to that games. But you know, as much as I wanted to be with them, I just could not put up with uh the powers that be and and what you know the, the circumstances that they wanted me to work under. So, yeah, I left, took the you know, the, America had been on to me for a year. I hadn't taken this decision. I had been putting America off for a year uh, and talking with him and putting on a long finger and, and, and it still persisted. And and then eventually uh, that contract, that final contract I got um, uh, made up my mind for me. And that's when I decided to move.
0: And, you know, I remember it at the time, like it was obviously in the press and, You know, and at that, I'd like, I was, I've been in Spain since 2013, so I follow the Irish press, you know, obviously every day and stuff. But I remember at that time when that was going on and, you know, the politicians were trying to intervene and people were like, oh, this can't happen and you can't let such a good coach go and so on. But what amazed me was that they still let it happen. It still went on and they let you go. That was what the shotgun thing was.
1: Yeah, at any of the time, it was probably too late not to let me go. I was gone. But here's the situation. We are now, today, the IABA are in front of the Oireachtas again. Again. This day, at 2 o'clock today, they're going. They're in front of them again, right? And this happened six years ago, and it was a talk shop at the Aractus, and nobody made a stand nobody made a call. Uh, I was still let go and not there was no repercussions for anybody within it. The sports council need to stand up and get a set of balls. And uh, you know, they're the ones who are giving out the money from the taxpayers to these sports without making them accountable. And, you know, that's where that's where it ends at the end of the day. That's where the final book stops. The the shame is, you know,
0: If you're in an organization and, you know, your your hand is forced and, you know, you're you leave. But by leaving, you kind of become a bit of a martyr in the sense that things may change because of your departure. That's a good thing, I suppose, in itself. But it's such a shame then that you know, for Irish boxing, we had to lose you and being such a fantastic coach. Now, when I know in your own development and your own thing, maybe obviously going to the USA it was a great move for you and obviously for the USA team, but it just, it kind of shines the ugly light of too much politics in sport and too many, you know, cooks in the kitchen. And sometimes when I look at the IABA and, you know, even now, like, Boxing is such a wonderful sport. But when you look at even what happened in Rio, you know, with Michael Conlan and all the corruption, there's too many people that aren't boxers anymore that are controlling and pulling the strings, aren't they?
1: Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. Maybe they have the wrong, uh, wrong agendas. <laughs> you know, I think it's all about themselves instead of all these kids that want to fulfill their dream and become an Olympian or become an Olympic champion. I think that's where they need to get their, their head around. And, you know, the sport is in real real threat of not being at the next games for the first time, you know, which is, it'll be a disaster for, for, for the sport. The sport will go underground. People like won't want to, you know, do a lot of guys will go professional, very young, you know, it is a whole underground world of boxing that, yeah, we really don't want to see. You won't have medically covered events, you know, people are going to be a lot more in, like, there's so much things could go wrong with the sport if it's not an Olympic sport. And we're in a real threat of that because of egos, because of people trying to make make something out of it, you know. Um, So, hopefully that will not happen. Um, But it's in a real threat of it right now.
0: Well, we saw like what happened with the whole cycling world, with Lance Armstrong and the whole, you know, doping issues and everything. But it really tarnished the sport and i know people still follow it but i think a lot of the mainstream audience you know like who watch it occasionally or watch the tour de france they fell away from it you know and they kind of it killed a lot of the that mainstream appeal and the shame would be now that if people are watching boxing in the olympics or any events and thinking ah sure it's all corrupt anyway like this guy is the is the you know favorite, or he should win it, but because of the refs and because of corruption behind the scenes, you know, is it worth watching anymore? You know, and this is a shame, isn't
1: it? Yeah, it's a shame. You know, we're one of the most popular sports that that are in the Olympic games. You know, uh, we get great viewership, and it makes or breaks young lads' lives. You know, um, and their careers. You know, so it, it is a shame that. That's, you know, to, to read the McLaren report and obviously be part of it as well. It was a shame to hear all of that. And I and maybe being a, a naive wexer man, but I always felt, you know, everyone would be honest that they wouldn't do things like that. But unfortunately, it was happening. I do see, you know, the, the task force came in uh, to, run, you know, to run the Olympic Games and they did a really good job. And, you know, there was some bad judging there, but it was bad judging. It wasn't any corruption uh, in my view. And so... And I think, you know, what we're looking at right at the moment is the, the, the world championships. And a similar thing, there, there's definitely the right thing is being done to try and scrutinise the referees and judges and to make them, you know, obviously perform to the best of their ability. And so at the moment, you know, it seems to be going okay. We're on the right track. But is it good enough to keep the IOC happy? Yeah, We've got to wait and see. So
0: when you when you, you know left and you went to Colorado and you joined the, uh, the American team, was it definitive in the sense that they said to you, look, you'll be the head coach or we'll put you in charge of the women? Or, you know, how was there, what, what, did you get to make that decision or did they kind of say, we want you with the women's or we want you with the men's? How did that go?
1: So originally when it came, it was, uh, it was the women's head coach. So the men's team was not being funded over here. Right? Um, so they said, the only way we could get you in was that we got funding through the women's program. So um, so that's how the position came up for women's head coach. But they told me I would be, uh, when, before I left and all that, they, they told me that, I said, why would I want to go? I got the men and I got the women here. I got the youth. I got the junior here. Why would, why would I want to go to America to become the women's head coach? And they said, look, no, you will train both of them. We just, to to get you paid, we needed to have you down as a head coach of the women's program. I said, okay, that's fine with me. Uh, so we agreed terms and uh, sort of paid me to do it. I did both of them. And then after the Olympic Games, uh, so the men had no medals at the London Games. Uh, and then we won two medals in, in Rio. And then after after Rio Games, they the extended my contract to obviously Tokyo and um made me head coach of all of them both of them, men and women one thing i was kind of
0: surprised that i was reading in when in an article you were speaking about when you got there to the training facility and you expected obviously a much bigger setup than you had in ireland because of the size of the countries but that you realized it was more like a local gym or something. It wasn't exactly
1: what you expected. No, you know, and that was one of the first things, um one of the first things, you know, I went, wow. You know, this place like you, are, are you serious when I went actually I came over in in uh fourteen around Christmas time of four, thousand fourteen that they asked me to come over and have a look. Uh before I made the decision. And uh, I went over and had a look and I said, Are you guys serious about being Work class operation I said that gym up there is, is a lot of crap most of these guys have a, a better setup in their garage you know like there was one yeah. ring, <laughs> there was one ring and six box six bags so this is not an Olympic training Center this is like they they, they
0: maybe even had the axle from the trailer there
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah so know like so it wasn't you know I, I'm coming there thinking like mariga has got everything They're, you know it's big it's bigger it's got everything all the bells and whistles, but they didn't have it and you know and plus it didn't have a structure. Our system around the team was nothing. I couldn't believe how poor it was, to be honest. Uh, but then it left me in a good place to start with because I really had a blank page because they weren't, they didn't know what good looked like. Uh, I had a vision of what it looked like, and then I was, I got my opportunity to implement that. Oh, wow. and I'm sure
0: it was, it's different in the sense that when you went over, you know, I'm sure there was that bit of skepticism where you were thinking, okay. Am I going to get people being a bit two-faced and saying, Oh, we'll help you and then impeding your progress? Were you a bit wary of the bureaucrats within, you know, the American um association?
1: Not really. You know, um this guy used to come to me every day. And he turned up at, you know, wherever we were training, where we were in the weights gym or we we're in the boxing gym, and he turned up and he he'd say, How are things, Billy? And Ron was his name, right? And and uh it's a good, Ron. Good, yeah. He said, is there anything you need? Is there anything we can do for you? And well, I'm saying to myself in my Irish skeptical mind, I said, what the fuck is this fella looking for? He's <laughs> <laughs> he, he's up to something. You know what I mean? But as it happened, yeah. so our, <laughs> our group is Team 5. All the combat sports are Team 5. <clears throat> and he is the performance director of Team 5. He's the head of Team 5. And uh, Ron Brandt is his name, and he's a good friend now. But I was like, I was worried every day. This guy was coming over and asking me, Do you need any? Like, and I was thinking to myself, yeah, too I'm in good to be and, true. And they're trying to stop me from being successful, right? <clears throat> but he's coming along and asked me, How can I help you? I said, Jesus, something going on here. He's up to something, right? <laughs> but anyway, that's how it is. Like, how can we make you better? How can we help to make you better? And then I go to myself, Wow. Well, I'm getting worried about this now because now I have no excuses, right? <laughs> I had all the excuses at home, but I had no excuses here. to give me everything I want, anything I need to be successful. And so, wow, I better start I better start producing something.
0: But but obviously then uh, when you went to Tokyo, you know, the last time there, and you had seven medals, but I know you, you, you had said, you know, you weren't obviously fully happy because you, you didn't have a gold. But can you can you see like you've had good progress there?
1: Yeah, yeah. There's no doubt. There's been a progress. Um, you know, sometimes you know you're in a you're in a hurry. <laughs> yeah, you you want more. And you, you know, you, well, I hate you know I hate seeing opportunities uh, passing some of these kids. You know because you know the big games is once in a lifetime opportunity. And if you don't take your chance at it, you know you don't get another chance at it. But you know there's definitely been progression. There's no doubt. Uh, you know today's World Championships we're at. You know is, is the best we've done since 1999. So it's definitely a progression. We're building. We're building a good system around the country. You know, putting coach education, change the whole coach education program, uh, so that we will have sustainable success long after I'm gone uh, and moved on. So that's that's what the. The dream is for for it to have happen, and we're moving slowly towards that. It's a tough game, you know. There's 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 like there's there's percentages, one percents, you know, that that are getting people over the line here <laughs> to win to win in national to win in Olympic medals and world medals. You know, we just lost the medal yesterday. You know, we won the last round three two decision. If one of the other judges had gave us the last round, even though we won the round, if we had a won it by a four one decision, we'd have won the contest and that would have won us another medal. That's how that's how tight it is, right? It's 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 yeah.
0: Yeah, because it's all aggregates and yeah. margin and everything, so it all adds up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, look I'm I'm happy where we're at. We've you know, we've just turned around from the Olympic Games. We've come back in with a whole new team and we're winning medals. We we've two eighteen year olds that have won Olympic, I uh, won world championship medals yesterday. It's just phenomenal. There's no other country doing that.
0: That's really There's good. No other
1: country doing doing that with eighteen year olds. And a new team, a whole new team, yeah,
0: a whole new team. And you know, when you had that moment, obviously in in Tokyo, when you were in Duke Reagan's corner, and you know, you you came up against Ireland, and I think that was your first time against an Irish boxer, like, working on the American team. Was that a difficult moment? Like, I know you're being professional, but, you know, obviously the emotions kind of can affect you too, no? Oh, for sure.
1: You know, I think if anybody knows me, I'm, they know that I'm, a, I'm an emotional guy anyway, but um, yeah, it was, uh, it was very difficult. You know, Kurt Walker, you know, we brought him in as a 17-year-old into our elite team in Ireland. You know, it, it just hit me that day, you know, that we brought him in for that, that day that we were fighting to win that medal. I brought him in to, to train him to become an a Olympic medalist. And here I was in the opposite corner, actually preventing him from being, being an Olympic medalist.
0: Yeah, you, you felt like you were trying to derail him. Yeah,
1: but it, we, we did derail him, you know, at the end of the day. and It uh, just hit me because Kurt is such a lovely kid. We have a great relationship. Um, and I was just so disappointed for him and the Irish team, of course. But, you know, as I said to one of the boys after, I thought about it after a while, and it was very emotional. I cried in the change room, and Duke came to me the next day. And he said, Duke is a man of very few words, you know. And he said, Billy, coach, he said, coach, respect. He said, I saw you cry yesterday. So he had respect for what I felt for Kurt, you know. And, um, yeah, it um, it was a difficult one. But, you know, I said to a few of the boys, I thought about it a few days after, you know. If we had a loss, I'd have felt worse.
0: <laughs> These are the things with sport. You know, it's very cruel and it's a, it's a wonderful thing. And even in boxing, but, you, you know, when it comes full circle, that's what will happen, you know? So, you know, obviously you are the World Boxing Coach of the Year in 2016. Can you ever see yourself, you know, when your stint is up with the USA, can you ever see yourself moving into the professional ranks as a coach?
1: No. Not really. I've never had any ambition uh, to work in the professional game. I just, I think it's, um, I think it's, 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 a lot of it is manufactured. It doesn't really go in my ethos of honesty and hard work. And obviously there is a lot of that in it as well, but I I just feel, you know, your pathway is guided for you. Whereas the game I'm in right now is that we, we, we fight somebody from that nation, but he's the best from that nation. We're not picking a bomb a month to help you build a record. In this game that we we in Olympic style boxing, we're fighting, we're fighting another country, we're fighting the best from that country. And you know, and we're doing that constantly over the world, so the challenge is much greater. Whereas in the pro game, they can get guide you a pathway. If you have the right management team and the right money behind you, it'll guide you a pathway towards a world title shot. Uh, you know, and there's too many, there's too many world titles. This world championships right now, there's only going to be one world champion. <laughs> there's only going to be one Olympic. There's only going to be one Olympic champion. There's not going to be four or five of them. There's only going to be one Olympic champion at your weight division. So that's that's what drives me at the moment. And you know, obviously my expertise is in this area. And not saying that it doesn't transition into the professional area. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm just quite happy with this game. I get more out of it. I get more enjoyment out of it. Um, we get to see it change people's lives. We get to see them to go off then and become more champions and, and still have a good relationship with them. So I, I'm, I'm quite happy doing what I love doing. Uh, and that's following the Olympic ideal. Uh,
0: what do you make then of, obviously a girl you know well Clarissa Shields then now she's moved into the UFC and not the UFC the PFL or whatever but fighting in in the MMA and you know people look at Casey Taylor and say oh maybe you know when she gets out of the boxing game she could go into that what do you think of that and and obviously the other day Clarissa Shields lost her fight to a split or to a, a decision but do you think that's a wise decision for these you know champion amateur boxers to then go into that.
1: No, I think it's crazy. You know, I think um obviously it's a needs must. You know, Clarissa is phenomenal. She's a tremendous athlete. Um twice the Olympic gold medalist. She's the only female to achieve that. And, um, you know unfortunately she had to she went professional and then you know, there's not enough there's not enough people. There's not enough women out there professional. There's not enough big fights out there for her to make money and you had to revert to an MMA or doing UFC, whatever, whatever she she chose, which is a shame, and it's not her game, you know. And then she she ends up getting a loss on it. Uh, to make money, that's what you had to do, you know. Which is this is a crying shame uh, for somebody of the quality that she is and the standard that she is of as a garage boxer. boxer. Uh, and I don't, yeah, I think you know, Katie Taylor never has to go down that road. Katie Taylor, you know, has. A, a good career and well financed and has plenty of opposition in her weight division. Uh you know, which I you know hopefully she'll continue to be successful and and retire happily in the near in the near future. Can you see, obviously, with
0: the with the different weights that might be different, but can you see obviously that, you know, Taylor and Clarissa Shields will ever fight? Yeah, I don't
1: I don't think so. There's too much of a gap in the weight. Um but you know the professional boxing, the showbiz, the showbiz. You got you got these YouTubers now fighting world. You know, making extravagant mon- money out of going on. You know, showing this crazy stuff. People are paying for a view to watch all that crap. The the thing is,
0: I like you know I'm like that when when there's a, I'm like I could be on a weekend there switching between the boxing and the UFC and stuff. I I've, I'm always following them, but when I started watching the UFC, or not the UFC, but the the YouTube, uh, Logan Paul and these, and it's just, it's ridiculous, I mean, it's just not boxing and it's not fighting, and even you know, now when you have like Mike Tyson and Ray Jones Jr., you're looking at these, and these are, you know, great fighters and war great fighters, but it's a shadow of the former matches they used to have. These guys, and you see there as well. I saw when uh, the, when Evander Holyfield fought, fought was a um, what's his name? I can't think of his name now. But it's just a shame to watch it, and it's all done for money, and it tarnishes the legacy. and And I think that's what's going to happen with Clarissa Shields, is that it's going to tarnish her legacy the more losses she has, and Casey Taylor has such a good legacy already. When she's done, I think that's it. Just yeah, walk away. Sure.
1: You need, you know, it's a difficult place to be for a boxer, knowing when to stop. You know, knowing when to hang him up. There's always one more fight left in you. I've done it myself. <laughs> There's always one more fight,
0: you know. There's always one more fight. There's, so what? So now, obviously, with the World Championships, it, it's on, is it on for another week or how much longer do you yeah, have? Yeah, we're
1: finished here on the 6th. The six is the last day we head home on the seventh. I'm heading home to Ireland to Wexford on the seventh. Um, yeah, so we got we're actually today is the rest day. Uh, tomorrow we got tomorrow we got the semi finals and then on Friday we got the semi finals and then the finals the finals are on Saturday. How
0: many of your fighters are still in the competition? We got four
1: in the semi finals, four in the semi finals. So, yeah, four in the semi finals. Yeah,
0: wow, and can you, when you compare this world championship to the last one, do you do you feel like you're doing much better?
1: Yeah, last world championships we had one, we had one in in the final. So we yeah we've done better. We've we've won three more medals than we did last time. So yeah, without doubt it's been a, a better with with a whole. As I said, two of them are eighteen year olds and. and it's a, it's a whole new team as well from from the last World Championships, which is only two years ago.
0: Can we ever see it? I know you talk about it sometimes, but do you ever think, when you hang up the coaching gloves, that you'll move back into the hurling as a coach? Because I know you you make little hints sometimes you'd love to do it. Would you? Could you see yourself managing Wexford or some one of these teams, or even being involved in the backroom team?
1: Well, I, I've already actually uh, our new our newer uh, we just got a new manager, and you know, David. Since Davy Fitz left, and uh, from from Tipperary, uh, Dara. Uh, so I spoke with Dara last week, actually. So we've, uh, yeah, i have agreed to help him out in the background, and um, sit in the background, and, and be there for some of the athletes and, and for himself if he needs any. And he helped along the way. And then when from times from time to time when I'm home, then you know meet up with the team and and see where see where that'll take us. Um, yeah, look, I think. My back garden actually is Wexford G.A. Park, so over my back wall is, is the park. So I don't have to go too far, you know.
0: You should uh, you should get a trampoline so and just saying. bounce your way into the stadium and be here. I'm ready, lads. Cup yeah. of tea in hand. I don't know. To, you know
1: <laughs> yeah, I think maybe yeah, that's something in the future. You know, I've 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 signed a contract uh, to Paris uh, with the USA. So I'm here for another few years yet. Yeah anyway so
0: well listen i all i can say is you know so far because your career is not over well done for everything you've achieved and you know I, i have to say that when you were in ireland you did a fantastic job and i just think it's a shame that they never recognized that and they never recognized what they were losing and you know like it's great to see the work you're doing in the usa and how that is such a strong nation already, but obviously there was a lot that could have been changed and you changed it and you're turned it into a fabulous team as well. And I, I think in Paris, they're going to be a very strong team. Um, so, you know, well done for everything. And, and we really appreciate you coming on the show and it's been wonderful to hear your story and about your life and about, you know, what, what makes you who you are. So thank you very much, Billy Walsh. It's
1: been a pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: Okay, thank you, Billy. That was really interesting. I really enjoyed that chat, hearing about your achievements and all the medals you've got so far and everything you've done in the boxing world. You know, it's a wonderful achievement, and I really enjoyed chatting to you. It was wonderful. Thank you, Billy. Okay. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the show. This is the Collective Whisper podcast. My name is Simon Kay. It's been a pleasure having you here. And as always, we would like to ask you to subscribe and follow and keep listening to the show. We hope you're enjoying it. So until the next time, take care of yourself, take care of your loved ones, your family, and just enjoy yourself. Bye-bye. Take care. (music)